first of all, Amazon started as a bookstore. They started selling movies on DVD and Blu-ray and VHS. Then they started making movies. They start making their Amazon Studios. They're making movies. So much like Warner Brothers, which owned you know movie theaters in the 1930s and 40s, same concept, same exact concept. They're a movie studio. They want their movies to be in movie theaters to give them a higher value. Will they make money in movie theaters? Maybe, maybe not. But guess what? On their pay one, pay two windows, which, by the way, is their big game because they would essentially be taking the movies that they make and distribute to those movie theaters and maybe exclusively in those movie theaters. And yes, that's a bit of a problem. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, here once again with my colleague and co-host, Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro. And in this week's episode, we are going into all of the rumors and speculation around M&A in this industry, specifically the rumors of Amazon, the tech company, the e-commerce giant, buying AMC theaters. Is this happening? Is it not? We go into all of this in the feature segment with celluloid junkies Sperling Reich. Spoiler alert, it's not news yet. And as soon as it is, you'll find that story on boxofficepro.com. We do actually have some news to talk about this episode, though. There are some things that are definitively actually happening in yes. different corners of the industries that, that we could discuss. But before we get to that, Daniel, I know everyone wants to know what you thought of John Wick 4. You weren't able to go on that opening weekend because of us closing the CinemaCon issue, but you contributed to that quite solid uh, holdover audience. What did you think of the film? You like it? Oh man, I loved it. It was almost three hours long, which if you're not into these type of movies, you wouldn't sit through it. But I feel for the fourth part of a franchise... If you sit through nearly three hours of that fourth installment and come out thinking it's the best one yet, like I did, it delivers. And I think that's why there's already talk about bringing the band back together for a John Wick 5. You know, over $100 million in its first 10 days in release, you have to think it's real likely possibility. I had a great time. Nearly three hours at the lower Manhattan Alamo Draft House also meant I went through about five different beers. Uh, during that running time. Three-hour movie. I wasn't walking straight by the time I walked out. Yeah, it was one of those like very wonderful night outs on a Friday night that just involves going to the movies. Nice. I I didn't end up seeing anything over the weekend, but I did go to the nearby uh, dine-in cinema Nighthawk to do some movie trivia. First time I'm doing it there. We came in second place by one point. I was, you know, going out and, you know, taking a break, getting out of the craziness. I uh, heard a group of people clustered on the sidewalk across the street just talking about John Wick 4. And then as I was going back in a little bit later, a screening was getting out of John Wick 4 and everyone was just you know clustered in the lobby, losing their minds over it. Of the, I think, 20 or so team names, like four of them were John Wick puns or something. It was, uh, John, <laughs> the John Wick energy was strong that Tuesday night at the Nighthawk in Brooklyn, I'll tell you that. Well, it was strong in its sophomore frame at the box office. John Wick Chapter 4 from Lionsgate, holding to $28.2 million. Yes, a 62% drop, but I think a lot of that was expected, especially after we saw that $70 million-plus opening weekend. The title is now at $122.8 million here in North America. Great numbers from the franchise, as we've mentioned. That came in at second place, though, Rebecca, because another overperforming weekend from Paramount 
Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, opening to 38.5 million. I think a little bit higher than a lot of folks expected. What I've been hearing is a lot of people, for a lot of people, the movie was better than they expected it to be, quite frankly. I mean, and like you said, those marketing, the marketing initiatives that Paramount rolled out, there were some preview screenings at a few select regal locations where you would get in for free if you brought a potato. I don't know what they did with the potato, but it's a neat marketing hook. At AMC, my brother actually called me up and he he brought this up. He wanted to go to an AMC because they have like the popcorn tubs, but it's shaped like a bezazzle D20 dice. And for really? a, for a so custom it, it cup, was the... it's like a no stein, way. a tankard of some sort. You mentioned that it was interesting because Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, actually tweeted that it was the highest F&B sales of the year. Those popcorn tubs are really on cool. Friday. Yeah. It was fantastic. You know, you're seeing these parts of movie going culture and we always talk about it. How can circuits distinguish themselves and make themselves more attractive to moviegoers? It's fascinating, as you mentioned, Rebecca, how something like a popcorn tub or, you know, a special drink can get people excited to watch this in a theater, whereas they normally wouldn't make an event out of it. You know, maybe this is the type of movie that some folks would have watched at home, but these uh, marketing initiatives, like you mentioned, they make a night out special. And it certainly was special as we are talking about here for Paramount and number one finish for Dungeons and Dragons. Third place here, a photo finish. As we record this, we don't know who ends up on the podium. It's like the Australian Grand Prix all over again. We've got his only son from Angel Studios and Scream 6. Two very different movies. I think one of them has Jesus in it, and the other one has Ghostface. A, faith, so, a faith-based film and Scream 6 in its fourth weekend, both coming in at uh, $5.3 million. Granted, that's the estimate. A faith-based film might have come in either at number three or number four. I mean, it's you know diversity in the marketplace. How many times do we say it on this podcast that it's good to have a lot of variation? Though... I, there's another film here that came out this past weekend that I wanted to ask you about because to any of our listeners, I don't know if you remember back in January, Daniel was the one of us who, in addition to plugging away and working hard, was doing remote coverage of the Sundance Film Festival, watching screeners of a lot of these films. You really liked a film called A Thousand and One. And I remember you saying, you know, good side, it's gotten picked up by Focus Features, it's a good film. It's quality, you know, it's a solidly made film. Bad side, they're putting it out in March. That seems really soon. Are they going to be able to market this thing? Is this just kind of going to be a throwaway? I mean, yeah, it came out this week in not even 1,001 theaters, in 926 screens. And did you, I mean, I think I started seeing a poster like three days before. Yeah, for me, maybe 10 days at most. I think that marketing campaign started a little bit late for the scale of this release, right? I mean, we've seen titles like this, and it is a demanding title. It's a drama. It's a hard-hitting, realistic drama. You could see something like this come out in really even a platform release, right? I mean, under 100 screens and try to find scale through holdovers. 926, I think, is... A very high screen count, to be perfectly honest. 1.8 million bad. box office debut. That's almost $2,000 on a per screen average basis. To give you an idea, that per screen average for 1,001 actually makes it the number four film in the marketplace from this weekend. So yeah, not terrible. But yeah, I think if you're going to a screen count that high, I do wonder if there was enough marketing for this. But at the same time, Rebecca, it's a great movie. 
very difficult to market. It's a really difficult to market film. It's a gritty drama. There's a lot of melodramatic elements. It's not going to be something that you can easily sell in a 30 second TV spot or even in like, I don't know, like a billboard. But there is an audience there. And I look at that result and I really hope it can grow in subsequent weekends. I think on the opposite end of the spectrum, the film that's got to be, I mean, I don't say the easiest to market in a dismissive way, but the Super Mario's Brothers movie that's coming out this next weekend, I mean, that I feel like we've been seeing marketing for that one since pre-pandemic almost. I don't know. That's our big movie coming up next weekend. That's right, Rebecca. And that movie, I think, is going to perform very, very well this weekend. That's tracking between 75 to $105 million for opening weekend. We do expect this movie to hit above $300 million. This is going to be one of those great hits to kick off an important second quarter at the box office this year. We've been saying it since our preview episodes earlier in January for this podcast. We make it through Q1 and then things start to rev up. Absolutely. And it's a great start, I think, with a big tentpole title like this from Universal coming in and and getting people excited. And it's not the only movie coming out next weekend. We also have, I think, a solid counter programmer in the more adult skewing air, the story of the creation of Air Jordans. I don't know how many like 12 year olds want to see that, but it seems like a dad movie from Amazon, actually, part of their ongoing commitment to theatrical. And and Daniel, I know we'll be hearing a lot about Amazon and theatrical later in the episode. But first, what are predictions that we have for this? I think a little bit more modest when we look at the big picture. This is a drama set in the 80s. It may pick up some word of mouth buzz, but we're not going too heavy on this. Right now, the box office pro weekend prediction is between 8 and $15 million for the opening weekend, right? It doesn't need to break a lot of box office records. It's going to be a solid counter programmer to everything else in the market. And as long as it can play a complementary role, I think a lot of folks are going to be happy. Because really, if we look at that Q1 that's now in the rearview mirror here, I think a lot of that success in the first quarter of the year, Rebecca, came from counter-programming options like Air that came into the market and performed a little bit better than we expected. Faith-based titles, anime titles, international like Indian titles like Python, I mean... It seems, thank God, every week or every few weeks, there was that kind of secondary story, a film that maybe did better than expected on top of the movies that were expected to debut at the top of the box office, like the Ant-Mans and all that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why the first quarter ended up at $1.71 billion here in North America. Now, that is well below the $2 billion plus benchmark that had been set between 2004 and 2019. All the pre-pandemic years had Q1 box office above the $2 billion mark. But let's compare it to 2020, where, as we remember, Rebecca, maybe there were three weekends in March that were affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We had Onward come out and people were already scared to go. We had a couple of titles that opened a little bit soft that were performing soft in Q1 2020. But Sonic did well. Yeah, exactly. By and large, some did well. You had uh, Bad Boys for Life that was performing very, very well in that corridor. That 2020 Q1 box office, which was two out of three months, you had 246 theatrical releases that earned $1.78 billion. Q1 2023 box office, $1.71 billion from 179 releases. So even now, three years later, 
being able to have theaters open the entire time in the first quarter, we still had around 70 titles missing from release in theaters, but we came very, very close to matching those 2020 figures. I think it just goes to show what that NATO Cinema Foundation data report kept on telling us, right? If the movies are there, the audience is there. And we saw that in the Q1 box office. We're close to that pre-pandemic level. We just need to make sure more titles keep on coming to theaters. Look at the top 10 so far this year. So Q1 releases and you have, of course, Avatar, you have Ant-Man, you know, the Marvel stuff, but then you have kids movie in Puss in Boots. You have Creed 3 with the sports. You even have a man called Otto, a very adult leading counter-programmer sneaking in there at number eight. Horror films, of course, Cocaine Bear. I mean, it's a it's a wide variety. And I got to think, yeah, if there were just more films in terms of the quantity, people would have gone out to the movies more. But that's what we're looking we're right at going there. into Q2, though. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And we're, we're starting that off, like we said, with Air from MGM United Artists, now an Amazon company with a theatrical exclusivity release. We didn't always see that from Amazon last year. We saw that earlier this year with Creed 3 that did fantastic numbers. Let's see how Air performs in theater. But we also have as close to a guaranteed as possible with this Super Mario Brothers movie from Universal. We'll be going over those results over the weekend at boxofficepro.com and in next week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. And of course, that's going to be great news for our partners in exhibition. And before we get into the exhibition news segment of the podcast, Rebecca, could you share a message from this week's sponsor, Jack Rowe? This week's news segment is brought to you by Jack Rowe, whose ticketing point of sale system, or TAPOS, has customers singing its praises. Mark Williams of Scott Cinemas says, We have worked with TAPOS for over 25 years using its ticketing and concessions point of sale, as well as online booking and card payment facilities. They've helped us navigate an ever-changing landscape and helped us as an independent cinema operator to keep our ticketing modern. We've worked closely with the development and support teams to customize a system to meet our needs, with particular focus in recent years on working towards a cloud-based head office. For more information, visit www.jacro.com. Thanks for that, Rebecca. And thanks to this week's sponsors, Jackrow, for their support of the Box Office Podcast. So let's go into this uh, new segment on the exhibition side of the world because we've got updates from uh, Reading Cinemas, actually. They've got some theaters here in the U.S., some in uh, New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, anyway, Daniel, yeah, that time is, is rolling around. We're seeing Q4 results, year-end results for some chains coming in. My main takeaway in, in reading through their end-of-year 2022 results is maybe that the numbers paint a more dour picture than is actually deserved. If you look at their numbers worldwide, revenues of uh, 47.2 million actually decreased compared to Q4 2021. They were actually down about 5.4% compared to Q4 2021. But like the Australian and New Zealand currency was not trading well and did not have a good year. So that's that kind of skews any numbers conversation that you want to talk about with the exchange rates. That said, some uh, worldwide revenues actually increased, which Reading CEO Ellen Cotter attributes to just playing what we've talked about in this past episode, having more films. They kind of bury the lead, though, I think, and, and I'm not going to bury the lead for you guys. This is a company that is involved in, you know, a lot of different industries, including theater, like 
play live theater. They own a place in New York that Daniel, it's uh, the theater that's played Stomp for like 30 years. Stomp's closing. Oh, in and, and the East Village? Yeah, no Orpheum, way. Orpheus. Anyway. Yeah, you know. I remember that. Yeah, I think it's Orpheum. I think Morpheus is the guy from The Matrix, which is a natural mistake someone like ourselves would make. You're going to want to go there soon because in May they are opening like a Star Wars themed burlesque show called The Empire Strips Back. Ah, so that was like, that was the first time I've ever read any, you know, burlesque show related news in a quarterly earnings report. Happy to be able to say that I've gotten to that point, something I'm not happy about. You know, it's never the greatest moment in my week to wake up bright and early on a Monday morning and see a release just filled with legal and financial jargon, but that's what we had this morning (laughs) with some news from Cineworld. What do we have from this announcement? There's a plan. There's a plan for Cineworld, the parent company of Regal, to emerge from Chapter 11 bankruptcy. According to the communication we got from the company, it looks like the UK circuit and that the US circuit, so Cineworld in the UK and and Regal here in the US, it looks like they're not really looking to hear any bids which doesn't necessarily mean there won't be additional bids for that. But really, any more conversation that we can go into about the current status of Cineworld Regal puts us into the realm of rumor and speculation, which is actually a perfect transition for the feature segment on this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast, where we do exactly that. I am joined by Celluloid Junkies, Sperling Reich, the executive editor there, another trade publication exclusively focused on covering the world of theatrical exhibition. And we are going to go into every bit of rumor, every bit of speculation that's been floating around the industry over the past couple of months. I know there's a lot of concerns there, a lot of lack of clarity over what's happening with circuits like AMC. Uh, We mentioned at the top of the episode that there were headlines indicating that an offer from Amazon was in the works from AMC. We go into that rumor. We also go into all of the speculation surrounding Cineworld and Regal, any potential M&A involved there. And we go into the entire concept of tech companies investing in the theatrical exhibition space. All of that, Rebecca, is coming up right after the break when we're joined by Sperling Reich. Don't forget to stick around. But before then, a message from one of our sponsors. This week's feature segment is brought to you by full-service box office management provider Jack Rowe, which has customers singing its praises. Julie and Jeff Eisentrout of Eisentrout Theaters say, Jack Rowe has expertly responded to the growing digital needs of the industry and developed a product that is both logical and operator-friendly. Their support has always been timely, helpful, and reliable. Perhaps more important are the relationships we've developed. Jack Rowe's team has always been available when needed and treat us like we're part of the family. For more information, visit www www.jackrow.com, J-A-C-R-O.com. And we're back here on the Box Office Podcast with Sperling Reich, the executive editor of CelluloidJunkie.com, which is another website, another publication that is exclusively focused on covering the theatrical exhibition business. Sperling, it's great to talk to you again. You're a good friend of mine. We travel the world together in this exhibition convention trade beat that honestly, it's it's no other publications that, that cover this. It's usually going to be Box Office Pro and Celluloid Junkie to going to all these events. And 
right? Even though I guess we technically are competitors, we're also good friends. I always say that. People are always shocked when they hear that we talk to each other all the time. In fact, you know, you'll call me and say, hey, do, or text me and say, hey, do you know anything about X or Y or Z? And, I, and I'll say, oh, no. Or I'll say, oh, yeah, here's where to find the stuff about the Regal bankruptcy or the Cineworld bankruptcy. Or It's a very collaborative process uh, when you work a beat like Sperling and I do. And you end up forming bonds with people that work in other publications when you end up being the same people and the same publications that go to all of the events. Now, if you go to any of these global exhibition conventions, you will usually see someone from Box Office Pro, myself or my colleague Rebecca Pauly, sitting next to Sperling or his colleagues, Helen Budge or Patrick Wonsikowski, at the front row of whatever panel conversation is happening. We sit there, we trade notes, we trade glances whenever something sounds a little bit funky to us, and we run ideas by each other. This is especially true when we get into these waters of seeing a report that we didn't see coming. And this was exactly what happened last week with a headline that popped up in Amazon, the technology company, the e-commerce giant, being interested in acquiring AMC Theaters, the world's largest exhibition circuit. Now, this was a big surprise to see this headline. And uh, immediately, I went over to Sperling and I went over to a number of off-the-record sources that I personally have. Could not confirm this, either off the record or on the record, forever it's worth. Sperling, you've been working in this space covering exhibition for well over a decade. I'm a decade plus as well in my connections and my coverage. Either on the record or off, neither of us could confirm or source any validity to this report, which doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that as a piece of news, it just isn't there yet. I reached out independently to both Amazon and AMC Theaters, both of those entities, both of those companies on the record called this nothing more than a rumor or speculation without commenting any further. In fact, both entities pointed me to look at where the original source article of this came from. There was only one publication using unnamed sources, a publication that I have not seen at a single trade convention, which again doesn't mean they didn't source this independently. But this report originally came from a publication called The Intercept, and that's it. That is the only entity in this universe that has a lead on this. And hey, it very well may turn out to be a scoop. We're going to go into the reasons as to why an acquisition from a major tech company of a major exhibitor would make sense. But we have to start by clarifying this, guys. Sperling and I cannot treat this as news. If you go to boxofficepro.com, you will not find any stories around this rumor. And if you go to celluloidjunkie.com, you will also not find any stories on this rumor because it's precisely that. It's not news. And as the only two trade outlets exclusively focused in the English language on covering this sector of the industry, we both independently came to a decision that this wasn't ready to report. So we didn't. So we ended up saving it for this discussion right here on the feature segment of our podcast. This is to clarify analysis. We are going over the reasons of why it may happen. It's not completely unheard of, but to be very, very clear, once again, it is not news. It is not something that is anywhere near confirmed. We are strictly in the realm of speculation. So let's open with that, Sperling, now that we've got you on. We've got a number of rumors swirling around this entire sector. We've got the number one 
exhibition circuit in the world being in talks of being acquired by Amazon, the rumor we've just been going into. And then we've got also a very real piece of news, the number two circuit in the world, Cineworld, the uh, parent company behind the United States Regal Cinemas, they're going through chapter 11. They're just emerging from that right now. But there are a lot of rumors, a lot of speculation on what parts of that Cineworld circuit are going to get divided up to other entities, whether it's private equity, whether it's another exhibition group. So let's get into that. Let's go into the hard news of this that we can get into to start off this segment, Cineworld. Chapter 11, they're emerging from it. There's a plan, but there are questions. How much of that Cineworld circuit stays? How much of it is sold off? The problem that you have, and this is this is all finance, by the way. The problem that you have is you have, what, a $5 billion valuation and $6 billion in debt. So start doing the math on that. You go, well, what if I just paid your debt off? Could I just buy your comp? I mean, this is the problem that happened with Cineworld. Basically, you're trying to make the creditors whole. You're not trying to make any of the unsecured creditors whole. And an unsecured creditor would be, and I'm just off the top of my head, I would say, like whoever they use for as an integrator or a popcorn vendor. Those are unsecured creditors. They were sent product and they didn't pay for it and they eventually will pay for it, ideally. But in this case, you know who the biggest unsecured creditor is right now? Cineplex. Over at Cineworld, the biggest unsecured creditor is owed 955 million US dollars around because they have this judgment against them. And until that's either waived or overturned or I don't know what, they are the biggest unsecured creditor. And that's a massive question, I think, that we've had ever since we first heard about that financial penalty for Cineworld walking out of the acquisition of Cineplex, Canada's largest circuit, the number four circuit in North America, nearly a billion US dollars off a penalty that's been levied. That's still up in the air. I think there's some appeals that haven't been clarified. But this entire bankruptcy drama that Cineworld is in is just mired in speculation. And there are other companies, other vendors, as you just mentioned, that are caught up in the middle of this. Companies like NCM, the cinema advertising giant, which is currently embroiled in a lawsuit with Regal, which also owns part of NCM. It's a mess. And that's why we've been very, very careful not to report any rumors on anything swirling around Cineworld, anything swirling around Regal, until we can firmly confirm it, simply because we know that there are people who listen to us, people who read our website, people who read Box Office Pro magazine, whose jobs depend on having actual confirmed sourced and verified information. That's why you haven't seen this online, but this is the forum to get into it where we can treat this as a discussion, we can treat this as analysis. And that leads us into the second point here that we have on the table, Sperling. Amazon's supposed interest in acquiring AMC. This is surprising to hear in this instance, but it's not surprising to hear rumors of Amazon magically flying down from the sky or a great tech benefactor coming in and investing in exhibition. Man, we hear this like every four months. If it's not Amazon, it's Apple, it's Netflix, Always some tech company interested in buying a circuit. Not that long ago, it was Amazon going in and buying Landmark, the art house cinema chain here in the US. So many outlets reported that as fact. Guess what? It wasn't. Here we are once again, rumors of Amazon and AMC. Once again, rumors that we were not able to confirm as anything but speculation. 
But let's go into that. Let's go into the reasons of why it may happen. Because again, it's in the realm of possibility. Sperling, what is the main reason behind why an acquisition of, let's not even call it AMC, of a major exhibition circuit would make sense for a company like Amazon? Whole Foods. They bought Whole Foods. Amazon bought Whole Foods. Do you know how many times I visited Whole Foods to buy groceries in the past year? I can't tell you, but I have visited Whole Foods quite frequently to return Amazon items. So <laughs> the fact is, and I'm sure I might be an aberration or maybe not, you know, that people who go in to return an item go, oh, you know what? I'm going to get a smoothie or a coffee or, oh, yeah, I need to get some pasta or, oh, yeah, you know what? I got to get dinner tonight. So there is some kind of sense to it that every AMC could be turned into a kind of a drop-off zone or a pickup zone. And that's not totally unheard of either, right? We saw this a number of years back in the brick and mortar space where Amazon, but without making an acquisition. So by the way, this deal that Amazon made with a department store called Kohl's had no M&A behind it. It was just a partnership where Kohl's stores would accept Amazon returns as a drop-off center. So you'd go into a Kohl's location, drop off your Amazon package, you're returning, they would give you, I think, like a 10, 20% discount coupon for the store itself. And then the store actually saw a nice boost in sales of people that would return packages and pick up a pair of socks on the way out. But that's a very different deal. And again, there was no acquisition involved. I think it is very different going in and picking something up on your way out of a department store than, say, going to an AMC location to leave a return package and then decide to buy a ticket for a two hour long movie, I'm sorry. It's like apple and oranges with me. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't add up in that vein. Now, that doesn't mean there are not other reasons why Amazon would go into the movie theater business. And you believe that there is a structure here now that the Paramount decrees aren't a reality, now that you can find a streamlined pathway from production to distribution to exhibition and home video within the same corporate entity. If we know a company out there, probably the best example of a company that loves to own every process of a product's life cycle from production to delivery, it's going to be Amazon. That may be it here. There is that element to an acquisition of a movie theater chain. First of all, Amazon started as a bookstore. They started selling movies on DVD and Blu-ray and VHS. Then they started making movies. They start making their Amazon Studios. They're making movies. So much like Warner Brothers, which owned you know movie theaters in the 1930s and 40s, same concept. Same exact concept. They're a movie studio. They want their movies to be in movie theaters to give them a higher value. Will they make money in movie theaters? Maybe, maybe not. If they break even, that's great. But guess what? On their pay one, pay two windows, which by the way, is their big game because they would essentially be taking the movies that they make and distribute to those movie theaters and maybe exclusively in those movie theaters. And yes, that's a bit of a problem. I think they would say, yes, whoever, Cinemark, Marcus, B&B Theaters, you can play this Amazon Studios movie as well. You don't have to, but you're free to do so. We're going to be playing it in our own movie theaters. And then in 30 days, 45 days, 90 days, 120 days, we'll be streaming it online in perpetuity. And I think that makes a whole lot more sense. If a company like Amazon that we know likes to own every part of a life cycle of a product from beginning to end, it would make sense that they treat their Amazon Studios business, their film division, their entertainment division, the way they treat every other part of their company. But I will say something here that throws a wrench 
into this concept, right? Because I'll go back to the Whole Foods example that we brought up earlier. Whole Foods as an acquisition didn't really mean anything for the grocery store space, for the supermarket industry, when Amazon bought into it. The only thing that meant, it didn't really make that space any more dynamic or exciting or interesting to investors. No, the only thing that that meant, that Whole Foods acquisition, it just meant that Amazon bought Whole Foods. That's it. It existed in a vacuum. They didn't go out and buy Ralph's. They didn't go buy Wegmans. They didn't go buy Publix. They decided to go buy a specific grocery store chain that had a very specific demographic. Again, they didn't buy into an industry. They bought into a pre-existing brand. And what the Whole Foods brand gives you is something very different than what I believe any major circuit brand will give you. Now, there are some brands out there that do exist. Let's say an, an Alamo Draft House. That's an established brand. Is that an established brand that is in the realm of Amazon? Uh, I'm not too sure. Landmark Cinemas, the art house theater chain here all over the United States. That could make sense. Landmark, you know, there's an art house element there that you could maybe draw a parallel with the Whole Foods acquisition in the retail space. Okay, but I'm not exactly certain that would work, but I, I would believe that. I would buy into that concept. There are other chains internationally. I'm thinking Picture House, part of the Cineworld Network in the UK, Everyman Cinemas in the UK, also part of the demographic that I think would make sense if we look at Amazon's prior investments in the brick and mortar space, even the retail stores, which by the way, they're divesting of. They're actually taking money away from investing into physical spaces. You saw that with the Amazon Go stores that used to pop up here in New York and San Francisco. I think maybe even Los Angeles, you saw a couple. Those are disappearing one by one. You're seeing this divestment of Amazon from retail spaces, but when that investment did happen, it always was towards an upscale demographic. And I'm not sure that is precisely what AMC brings to the table. That doesn't mean to cheapen or discredit the acquisition that AMC represents an exhibition. They have a fantastic premium large format footprint. They have some of the best cinema technology anywhere in the world. Actually, they are the leaders of exhibition in the world, and they've made a great job in investing in F&B. They have uh, fantastic partnerships with companies like IMAX, companies like Dolby, in bringing some real state-of-the-art cinemas that I think are really attractive for a potential acquisition that leads you to a certain demographic. But that's not the entire network of AMC. AMC also has something called AMC Classic which is basically the, let's call it the JV team of AMC locations that were left over from the Carmike acquisition of, wow, what was that, 2015? Something like that. Anyway, there are a lot of uh, AMC locations out there that aren't even branded as a proper AMC. They're branded, as I mentioned, as an AMC classic, a separate designation with a lower ticket price. And when we look at that Whole Foods acquisition, that wasn't a factor there. There are no JV Whole Foods designations, right? There's no Whole Foods Express out there. When they bought into Whole Foods, they bought into a very specific branded demographic that, as I mentioned, there are other cinema chains, uh, Alamo, iPick, Landmark, uh, Everyman Picture House, that, that do exist, maybe cater to a specific demographic. I'm just not sure any of those circuits I mentioned have the scale where it makes sense for Amazon to invest. In the same way that it made sense for Amazon to invest in the demographic and scale 
that Whole Foods provided. And even now, years after the Whole Foods acquisition, to be perfectly honest, I don't see the big picture of what return was on that investment. Part of it was they were trying to learn retail, they were trying to learn groceries, they were trying to learn grocery delivery. That was part of what they were doing there. And I think part of what AMC was doing was admitting that AMC classics are going to be in parts of the country where we can't raise ticket prices, okay? And we need to raise ticket prices. And one way to do it is to say, well, you're going to the AMC Lux. So they started creating these different brands within AMC where they could say, well, this is the upscale AMC. So that, of course you're paying three or four or $5 more. Well, the branding issue, I think, is, is a huge part of that Whole Foods acquisition. I think one of the things that people really aren't looking at uh, seriously when we take these rumors, like the one we saw last week, a little bit too seriously. There are a lot of things we need to clarify, a lot of uh, holes that we can poke into this strategy. Again, we're not saying it's not news. We're just saying it's not news yet. We have nothing confirmed so far. It is pure speculation at this point. And there are a lot of uh, question marks that we have on this ever becoming a reality. Now, it, it could happen. But even if it does, let's say that Amazon does go in and buy a major circuit, whether it's AMC or somebody else, is that really going to mean anything for the rest of theatrical exhibition? Just look at Amazon's investment into the supermarket space. What did that mean for everybody else? Absolutely nothing. It's not like Google woke up the next morning and said, oh crap, we have to go buy Wegmans. That just simply didn't happen. Twitter didn't go in and buy Ralph's, right? It just meant that Amazon bought a company, period. There wasn't a wave of additional investment. There wasn't a gold rush into the supermarket space. They're still supermarkets. They're still grocery stores. So we really have to step back and question the motivations behind people trying to sell this hype. This may be a piece of news down the line. It isn't yet. So why is this being treated like something that is going to be positive for the industry without asking any of the difficult or serious questions that we should when confronted with any rumor in any sector? So I'm glad we're taking the time to go into this concept of what would an acquisition of a major circuit by a tech player, whether it's Amazon or anyone else, look like? Because it's not that it may not be true. Like we said, I I haven't really seen anyone from The Intercept at any trade convention ever, period. And we go to a lot of them. We go to almost all of them. But that doesn't mean that a deck didn't leak somewhere, that maybe someone overheard a conversation. These things do get out there. You know this yourself as a journalist, Sperling. Jason Kylar got a lot of grief when he, out of the blue, overnight, said every 2021 movie, Warner Brothers movie, when he was running Warner Brothers, is going day and date during the pandemic on HBO Max, which is, by the way, why I was hired and brought over to Warner Brothers was to build HBO Max, and it will be released in movie theaters at the same time on the same day. He got a lot of grief for doing that without checking with creatives first and without checking with the agents and without checking with any of the producers or any of the partners or any of the production companies. There's a reason he did that, and he admitted to this. It's because the second you tell one person and you start negotiating with one person, you may as well take out trade publication ads because it will eventually leak. And that is exactly what you're seeing with another rumor that was started that involves a tech company. And that was the rumor I thought you were going to refer to at the top of when we began talking, 
which is Apple going in and spending a billion dollars. I mean, and I think the reason that this rumor got started is because they are, Apple is out there. They don't have a mechanism or an infrastructure to distribute movies themselves. So they're doing what anybody, what frankly Amazon did when they first started making movies. They went out and they partnered with existing distributors. So whether it was Fox or whether it was Lionsgate or whether it was partnering with any of those distributors, it worked for them. And then they figured it out. And now they're distributing their own movies to the point where they went, they said, you know what? Let's just buy one. Let's just buy MGM UA. We've partnered with them. And to be fair, that was also a rumor that we also didn't originally report in, in either of our publications because we didn't, we couldn't source it ahead of time. Now, once it became news, of course, we both reported it and it's a positive thing for the industry. But that's another example, Sperling, like we were talking a second ago about what that really means for the whole ecosystem. Now, the positive thing of that is that Amazon, which began distributing independent films to theaters in a very theatrical first strategy and a very friendly strategy for exhibition, then changed that strategy a couple of years in and was very prime streaming video focused for a number of years. It seems that now, after the MGM-UA acquisition, they are investing more and more into theatrical releases, which is great. In the big picture, what that looks like, well, I can tell you this much. In 2021, the first CinemaCon back that we had, MGM United Artists had our, arguably one of the best CinemaCon presentations. They didn't come up in 2022 with a CinemaCon presentation. Now, why is that? I can understand 2022 will give them a pass, right? You have the Amazon acquisition in the balance. We really don't have any clarity. Okay, fine. But in 23, even as we know that Amazon is investing a lot more in films going to theaters, they're not at the CinemaCon schedule this year in one of the studio presentations. For me, I can tell you that's concerning because that means that they don't see theatrical and their slate in the same way that every major studio and important players like Neon, like Focus, like Lionsgate have done in the past by investing in presentations, by investing in going out there and marketing and promoting their slates to exhibition. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of concerned that they didn't show up this year. Now, that doesn't mean they won't show up next year. I'm actually very much hoping that they do, that they end up being a big player at these trade conventions. And that doesn't mean that they might not pop up in one of the film expo group shows later on this year. We've seen that in the past, right? I mean, Sony, I think one year took a year off from CinemaCon presentation. That didn't mean anything other than they didn't present that year. You know, it didn't really mean anything in the big picture for Sony. Sony actually, that same year that they skipped CinemaCon, they showed up to the Film Expo group presentations. So I think that's something still in line here that I do want to figure out what do these figures of billions of dollars in investing in theatrical exhibition actually mean for the industry? Because like we spoke about with that Amazon Whole Foods investment, we really didn't see a ripple effect in that at all in the supermarket industry. I think the question's still up in the air. Will tech companies investing in theatrical mean anything for the rest of us or just mean that they own an exhibition company? They also didn't say over what period of time. They also didn't say what that billion dollars would be for. Is it for marketing movies that they know are good? Is it for making you know the movies? Is it for partnering with studios and Paramount? You put in a hundred million, we'll put in a hundred million, we'll make a two hundred million dollar movie, and then when it comes time to market it, you put in twenty five million, I'll put in twenty five million, and then well, you know, we have no idea. But I will say this: the reason that got started, the reason why it was reported on by Bloomberg, is because. 
Apple is likely going and talking to studios and speaking with them about distributing some of the original films that they're making or acquiring. And, you know, people get wind of that and start whispering things, and then a journalist picks up on it. It's the reason Jason Kylar decided I could go agents, you know, from creative artist agency to ICM to William Morris and tell all the creatives that I'm thinking of going day and date. But by the time I get to the second one, my head will be on a stake. Precisely. And that's exactly why we can't discount these rumors, right? We just simply can't report on them as news. And I think doing so is even disingenuous. Doing so, I think, is is selling a fantasy that's very much still premature. We'll see how these rumors mature if they go the way of Amazon buying Landmark or Netflix buying Landmark. By the way, that never happened. Or if it goes the way of Amazon buying MGM United Artists. They did. Which, by the way, Apple was also supposed to buy MGM United Artists at one point, and it was similarly reported on by a number of outlets. Didn't happen. No, doesn't mean, as you mentioned, Sperling, that discussions weren't out there, that there wasn't an offer, that there weren't talks. But talks are very different than facts. Right. Rumors are very different than news. And that's why we're dedicating this segment on analyzing just how realistic some of these headlines can be. And and if we buy into any of the promise behind these tech companies coming into our space and investing into our space, one of those rumors that always shows up, and I'm just going to throw all the all the meat into the grill here so we cover everything in this special rumor and speculation edition of the box office podcast i hear this one all the time too apple buying a movie theater circuit i know it sounds a lot less likely than amazon i get it but actually bear with me here because i'm going to defend this as if anything a lot more realistic and a lot more plausible than either Netflix or Amazon coming in and buying a major circuit. Simply because Apple, as opposed to, say, Amazon, that has a very strategic uh, brick-and-mortar presence through Whole Foods, Apple actually has a huge investment in having leases in shopping malls through their Apple stores. Apple has a very well-defined and very well-executed brick-and-mortar strategy at most of the top shopping malls, not only here in the United States, in some overseas locations too. If anyone knows how to work with real estate developers and get really good lease terms and knows what the value of attracting foot traffic to a shopping mall is, it's going to be Apple. They are at most compelling and dynamic and interesting shopping malls out there. It stands to reason for me to see Apple say, hey, we've already got an Apple store. Walk a couple of hundred feet and you can find yourself at one of the Apple movie theaters. Now, that does bring in a whole other range of questions, right? Because if Amazon is buying a demographic, Apple has its entire design aesthetic. Design is huge, massive for the Apple brand. And you can see that at the Apple stores, right? One of the reasons why the Apple stores were able to stand out the way they do and the way they have all these years is because they don't look like a best buy. They don't look like a big box electronics store, right? And that's why they've outlived them. They look like sleek, cool, (laughs) modern, and minimalist pods from the future. They would, I think, if they ever do invest in a circuit, probably bring a similar design aesthetic to cinemas. But again, do they buy something and renovate the entire circuit? Do they buy something that already exists, that has that demographic? And if they do, is that at the scale that they're looking for? Like we've been saying, iPick is a luxury theater chain that is very much that demographic. 
they don't have the scale, I don't think, right now for a major tech player to come in and buy into that demo for the movie theater space. So that's my next question here, Sperling. Just how realistic do you think would be Apple coming in and buying a movie theater circuit? Well, they'd have a lot more leverage too, because now it's like, hey, we own the AMC in this mall and we own the Apple store. So now you're talking two vendors, two different tenants. The only reason any of these tech companies are in content to begin with is for the cachet, is for the, you know, they get to go to the awards. You know, it puts their name. Coda was a $100 million advertising campaign for Apple TV+. Plus. They're in it to basically hang out with movie stars and bring movie stars to their platform as well they should be. I don't know that a movie theater does that. And of course, when we talk about M&A, it's not just going to be these tech companies that, that are always part of this conversation, even though we haven't really seen them invest, at least in a major circuit. What we do usually see when we talk about a major circuit M&A is either private equity coming in and buying either parts or the entirety of a circuit, or another operator coming in, another established circuit coming in and acquiring either specific locations or a good chunk, if not all, of a circuit. And that is precisely where Regal and its parent company, Cineworld, have been really all year, really ever since the Chapter 11 thing broke through the news, and as they've tried to navigate this really tricky situation of their bankruptcy. We have heard a number of players come in. At one point, I think AMC was bandied about being a potential suitor to buy Regal. Regal denied that. I don't want to get into the back and forth of what that meant, of what that was. That's hot fire politically that I'm not going to get burned on. But that was a conversation that was happening earlier this year. We've also heard circuits like VU International, the other UK-based mega circuit that's actually one of the largest circuits in the world, being part of that conversation. We've also heard about private equity groups like the firm Elliott Management, that the fund that has acquired a number of different companies in the past. We've heard Elliot being part of uh, conversations of not buying all of Cineworld, but parts of their international circuit. It's hard to make sense of all of this, uh, Sperling. What's your take? How do you make sense of everything that's happened, all the conversation around what an acquisition of all or parts of Cineworld would look like right now? I think, to be honest, it's really going to depend on the creditors, because at this point, there's in so deep that just turning their debt into equity is probably the most likely outcome at this point. That's really what they're spending their time focused on because essentially what the offer is, you have to buy all of Cineworld. So there's different parts. There's the Europe and Americas, and then there's the Eastern Europe and Israel. And basically they're saying, you have to buy it all. You can't just buy the stuff that makes money. You have to buy the poison apple as well. That's what they're saying. And so far, what everybody's come up with and said, hey, we'll buy that Eastern European uh, and Israel. But you know the, the stuff that makes money? Yeah, we'll buy that. All the stuff that has all this debt and bur you know, debt burden, we don't want it. And that's what I think makes this so difficult to report from, from a factual level and why often we end up being the third or fourth publication to break a story around what's going on right now in the Cineworld deal. And yeah, it's a tricky situation because we, we do end up getting into positions like we were not that long ago when a lot of outlets were reporting that 39 locations of uh, Regal in the U.S. were set to close 
when that wasn't exactly what the legal documents were saying. <laughs> Sperling, we went back, we looked at these documents, we read them, we analyzed them. I called a couple of lawyers on my end to try to make sense of these. Can you clarify what that situation was in the sense that not all of them were closed, right? Not all of them are closed, and that's because the omnibus hearing has not happened yet. Once that happens, then, and the court says, okay, you can get out of those leases, I'm allowing you to end those leases. That's basically, the court has to be kind of grant permission to do that. Otherwise, Regal is breaking a lease. It's the leases. It all comes down, you know, people don't want to buy the leases. They don't, that's why, you know, those cinema locations were on chopping block. And when I asked around who wants to buy, you know, who could buy Cineworld, it's like, well, who would want the leases? You know, we don't want all those leases. And then when I've talked to some of the creditors, I've actually talked to executives at, at some of these creditors by accident, by the way, just purely by accident. And then you hear that the, the analysts ask you questions like, well, what do you think the franchises are worth? for each you know, location. And I'm like, well, wait, what? You're analyzing this and you're asking me about a franchise for a center? They're not franchised. So, I mean, you can really begin to get the sense of why this is taking so long. And it's because it's $11 billion worth of problems that you're talking about. One of the first hearings that was had in the Cineworld bankruptcy was Cineplex going to the bankruptcy court in Texas and asking the judge to allow the Canadian court to continue the appeals process and, you know, basically depose Mookie Greidinger and, and the management over at Cineworld. And the judge said, listen, I can't allow that to go forward because why bother? You know, they might get pennies on the dollar for this judgment. So I have no idea whether this judgment amounts to anything. So why waste? I don't want, he said, I'm actually saving the Canadian court time by saying, no, you can't have that go forward because in a U.S. bankruptcy, all legal action stops except for the bankruptcy or most of it does. And that leads us into the final bit of a rumor and speculation that we're going to go into in this week's episode with Sperling Reich from Celluloid Junkie, because we hear this again every four to five months, uh, Netflix. Netflix is the other tech player in this industry, and actually the only tech player out of the ones we've mentioned, Amazon and Apple, that actually does own movie theaters. But there is a crucial distinction here. Netflix owns movie theaters. They don't own a movie theater circuit. And I would actually argue, out of all of the companies we've mentioned, Netflix is the least likely one to buy a major movie theater circuit. If anything, at most, I can see them buying something with a more limited scale. All the companies that we've mentioned in this week's podcast episode that we've said don't have that national scale for an Amazon, for an Apple, they actually might have that limited curated audience and smaller scale to make sense for a company like Netflix. But that is as far as I would go. Netflix owns movie theaters to help showcase their films. They're not in the movie theater business. I think that's the major distinction. Amazon makes money through buying, I'm sorry, through selling everything on earth. Amazon is an e-commerce giant. I would actually believe that Amazon sells movie tickets first before believing that Amazon buys a movie theater circuit. I think for me, that makes a lot more sense. Amazon getting involved on the e-commerce side of selling tickets to movies, especially because they're releasing the movies themselves through, through Amazon Studios. Apple makes money by selling devices, your computer, your phone. They're diversified in a way that Netflix isn't. Netflix makes 
money one way and one way only through selling streaming subscriptions for their streaming platform. That's how they work. So it's a very different strategy that they have going into the movie theater circuit. Again, I'm not sure they would buy a whole circuit to play films from everywhere. I think it makes a lot more sense for them to pick up strategic art houses, strategic locations as a way to show their movies in cinemas. Maybe it doesn't do much for them at a stock price level, but at the very least, it's gonna keep filmmakers they work with happy to know that there's like a handful of Netflix theaters playing their movies. But yeah, what's your take on this, Sperling, on, on the eternal promise that Netflix is gonna come in and, and buy a theater circuit? Well, I think first of all, given what the correction that their stock underwent last year, when essentially Wall Street said, hey, you know what's really important in a business? Profit. So maybe stop spending so much money and start, uh, all of a sudden it wasn't like market share and subscriber count, it was profit. And when that happened, their stock took a nosedive. And so what they said is, hey, we're going to actually pull back from making original content, pull back from making original films. So going out there and buying a circuit is like the last thing they would probably do. And here's why they don't do that. A movie has a life cycle. First comes theatrical, then comes pay one window, pay two window, and then you know you get your home entertainment and then it, it eventually winds up on a streaming service and being licensed. The theatrical end of that it's great when they make money like Top Gun. That's great. You know, it's made a lot of money. More likely, you break even. That's pretty good, actually. Breaking even theatrically is pretty good. But you're really just trying to get to the pay one and pay two windows, which is, you know, your HBOs and your television contracts, because that's where you're actually going to make money. And that's where it pays for itself. Netflix has no pay. It is its own pay one. It's the only window that matters. One reason to release a movie theatrically, you know, not only to break even and all, you know, all the things I previously mentioned and those pay one and pay two windows, is to promote the content itself and to gin up interest in it so that when you do get to the pay one and pay two windows, people are interested. Netflix doesn't have that problem because yeah, they have 230 million subscribers. Why does Apple release films? theatrically and want to release films theatrically because they have like 30 million subscribers. They need to get to 230 and that's why they're doing it. Thank you very much for that analysis, Sperling. Always nice to have you here on the podcast. And thank you again to Jackro, our sponsor of this week's episode. And once again, thank you to you, the audience, for sticking with us, sticking by us. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, like, share, talk about our podcast. It helps us do what we're doing every week. New episodes of the Box Office Podcast come out every Thursday. The show is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. We'll see you again next week.